Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And this is Chris Jackson. And Fred, I think you were just about to start a conversation about accelerated life testing. Is that right? Uh, Well, yeah, I got a couple of questions this week, actually, in the same day, two different venues or methods or paths, one's through LinkedIn and one's through email. And and they're related in, in a large degree. And they were both about accelerated life testing, ALT. And one was what would be a straightforward, honest question that I know I asked early in my career was, well, how many samples do I need for an accelerated test? And I, hmm, okay, from sitting where I'm at now, let me think about how to answer this. And then the second question, and I didn't even got to the first one yet, and I opened up this other question, and it was, you know, um, we're looking at doing accelerated testing. Why are there so many different models? And, and they mentioned log normal and, and power law and uh, Weibull and uh, Coughlin. They didn't mention Coughlin Mansion or Black's equation or a handful of these other named ones, but all these different distribution-based type models or, or power law model, inverse power law, all kinds of stuff like that. And I thought, well, you're not even scratching the surface on this. There's, there's more than that. And so I thought, uh, well, I guess we could talk for about three, four hours just on accelerated testing, but or a whole <laughs> graduate course, as I think you've you've experienced. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it baffled me. Uh, and, and then I got one where it was, well, we're using the Coughlin-Manson equation for this, all right? Well, what's the failure mechanisms? Oh, it's this uh, uh, polymer is is crazing, all right? from UV radiation or something like that. And I said, well, that's not related. <laughs> well, it's got temperature related and it does thermal cycling and that's, that has to do something with cracking, doesn't it? And Why is accelerated testing so complicated? I guess is the better question to summarize all three of these. Well, I don't know if it's complicated, but I've been trying to find a good analogy to, you know, when people ask you, well, how many samples do I need? And... You go, I, I think, I mean, it comes down again, it sounds like like a metronome response is what decision are you informing? Yeah. What are you trying I'm, to do? So, what do you want to yeah. know? <laughs> right. So what's the, maybe a good analogy is saying, well, you just, what happens if I ask you how much fuel do I need for my car? What's your first response going to be? Well, where are you driving? Yeah. Are you driving to a corner store or are you driving to on a, on a holiday? With Are you towing an RV or a caravan or a trailer? Because I need to know that before you tell me, I can tell you how much fuel you'll need. You go, no, no, just tell me how much fuel I need. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know any of that stuff. Just tell me how much fuel I need. And yeah. I think that's largely analogous to these questions we get where they say, no, just tell us how many samples we need. Where do you want to go? doesn't matter. Just tell us how many samples. Yeah. And that's, if that's where you know the person asking the question stops, that's where you need to stop because there's no answer. Um, it all comes down to what you're trying to do. You know, I think we've done this one to death in the past, but for example, are you just trying to work out 
we use Excel, accelerated live testing to differentiate between two materials. Right. So you got to choose one type of rubber, or you got to choose another rub type of rubber, like a peroxide cured rubber versus a sulfur cured rubber. Yeah. And you want to work out which one's likely going to last longer. Well, you need fewer samples. Yeah, it's a comparison. To- You're not trying to estimate duration, for example. Right. Just which one's stronger or more robust or resilient or whatever. Right. But if you want to know what the reliability of the one you chose is at you know 15 years with these with this uh, temperature condition, you want that you want to be 90% confident that whatever number you give up, which is going to be itself a percentage, well then you need a lot more samples. Um, so if you can't tell me what decision you're trying to make, I can't tell you what or how many samples you will need. It's sort of that simple. Yep. Oh, that reminds. I got another question the other day. Um, was well, reliability is not a percentage. And, <clears throat> okay. <laughs> and they wanted. Well, it might be a subject for a whole other podcast. This one was oh, is convoluted. Yeah. No, it was dealing. They wanted to specify reliability as a confidence. They wanted to be ninety percent sure that it's going to be last long enough. So that's a whole other conversation. We're back to accelerated testing. Yeah. Now sometimes you want to know. We want to make sure that a vast majority, like 95% of them, survive 15 years under these conditions. The hard part is, is it immediately at that point, <clears throat> immediately at that point, it's, are you talking about the whole product? Or are you talking about a particular failure mechanism that dominates your, the performance of your product? Because that's different. And like, and then it starts a whole discussion about, well, we need the whole product. And it says, well, you're probably talking about more than one accelerated test unless you've got a whole lot of other information available mm-hmm. to you. I think the key message with accelerated live testing is you don't accelerate the failure of your product. You accelerate the failure of a particular failure mechanism, which is corrosion or UV embrittlement of an epoxy, which I think is the one. Yeah. Which has got nothing to do with uh, solder joint metal fatigue. And so you're only accelerating a particular way that your product's going to fail, not the whole product itself. I mean, if you, it's like, imagine having, we'll go back to a car analogy. You know, most cars have a steel chassis. Yep. And those chassis are usually pretty strong. They don't, you don't hear too many cars that fail because the chassis snapped in two. Um, Oh, no, I was in a brand new, uh, um, I rented a brand new car. It had three miles on the odometer and the door went closed and it was a a Mustang convertible. I thought, well, this is a cool car. I I don't know why I got assigned this thing. And and apparently I was the third person that day that turned, walked back to the desk and said, no, I'm not taking this car. The door won't close. So it it, did the chest, the chassis didn't break, but it sagged enough that the door wouldn't line up. Yeah. So, yeah, I, it, it can happen. <laughs> it can, but it's not, I'd suggest at least it's not common. No, 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 not common. And it sounds to me, if I if the chassis sagging that early in the, into the career of that car, you'd suggest that there's something else going on. Something wasn't welded properly or, yep. uh, we know, we know how to, how to, um, we know how to make sh- strong chassis. Yep. But if you want to say, okay, I want to accelerate the, I'm doing accelerated live testing of the car. And you say, well, okay, let's, 
Let's look at corrosion of the chassis. <laughs> See how long it takes for it to corrode its way through. And you do an accelerator live test, you'll probably get a figure of 50 years, maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah, or more, up, yeah. Or more. You say, okay, therefore the car car is, um, you know, we, we expect it to have a 90% chance of lasting 50 years or more. Right. Yeah, that's not realistic because the only thing you're focusing on is the corrosion of a chassis. And now the chassis will eventually corrode, but it's not the dominant failure mechanism for that for that vehicle. Yeah. Now, and so, yeah, and they're saying, well, all the other parts were there. Well, if you only measure the corrosion rate of that steel on the chassis, then, well, you're ignoring all the other failures. I've actually right. run into people doing that. They were testing an electronics board for the CPU, and the, the memory pieces kept failing. And it, like they're both silicon ICs. Why is your memory failing? We're not studying that. We're studying this. And it says, what's the field failure rate? Oh, the memory fails all the time. But it's easy to replace. So we don't, we ignore that. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Good Lord. Oh, you wouldn't believe the sample sizes that they had. They were buying up and, and, and filling test labs all over the country. Uh, they had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of test beds with hundred with dozens of samples in each bed. You know, and it was just amazing the amount of money they were pouring into it. And I was like, if you solve this, will it help the customer? No. Okay. Why are you doing this? Right. It, but it comes back to the you know the sample size or which model to use or all those other things. It it starts with what you started off with, Chris. Is what are you trying to sort out? What are you trying to learn? Right. The answer is if that you can, if, if our listeners feel like they can relate to that team or organisation which was doing testing, that when you asked if it's going to help the customer, their answer was no, then all you're doing testing for is to make you feel better about doing something. That's yeah. what a lot of test programs do. They just people test because they their boss said test that, or they don't. They haven't done reliability at all, and now it's time to sprinkle. Fairy, uh, reliability fairy dust all over your thing. What do we do? Oh, we'll just test it. And then yeah. they can convince themselves that we've done reliability stuff and go home. And But I haven't, haven't done anything. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. Well, it's, it's, I uh, mean, it, it goes back to, I mean, the same, you're starting on the line of, you know, if you're doing a comparison, you don't need a ton of samples. You need no. enough, you know, if if the two, the measurement system you're using and, and, and that you can detect a difference that's meaningful to you, you don't really need a lot of them. If it's a lot of variability from sample to sample of each of the materials, your two types of rubber you're using, well, you might need more uh, samples to detect a difference. But that gets into the nuts and bolts of the statistics and variances and stuff like that. But even that, which would most of the time be a very simple uh, equation to work out you know, how many samples you need, you need some information. You need to know, one, that you're doing a comparison, and two, you need to have some estimate of the variance, uh, the variability of each of these types of samples. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they're very, very, very consistent, you need two samples, one of each. If each sample that you draw has, you know, within the batch differences that are very noticeable, bigger than what you want to detect the difference of, well, then you might need thousands of samples. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just the way the work, the math works here, guys, you know. Um, although I did have a boss one time tell me, he says, well, I don't like those results. Keep testing until you get the results I expect. 
And I, okay, well, there's, that's a different problem. <laughs> yep. But the, the idea is, is, is it a comparison or is it an estimate of duration? Is it, uh, are, are we meeting our objectives? Do we meet the goal that we're ready to ship, that we're not, our warranty is going to be within spec or our repair rates are going to be acceptable? Um, what is it you're trying to learn? What is it you're trying to answer? And then, that, then it goes almost immediately to, well, what's the failure mechanism and how do you measure it? is what am I looking for and how do I know if it failed or not? Um, it's to me testing at the whole product side for a relatively benign accelerated test is ludicrous, you know, unless you've got the full duration of the expected life and you can exercise it like it's in expected use conditions. Um, most of the time those are pretty useful, useless. Um, but unfortunately, I think vast majority of the time it comes down to the sample size equation is statistics based on the failure mechanism, what you know and don't know and how variable it is. But you need to know, I, I, I was working with a client the other day. It was, they were saying, well, we have this, we, we think we solved this failure mechanism that was plaguing this particular product. We want to prove that it's fixed. All right. Well, how good is good enough? Because if it's not there at all, you're not able to prove that it's not there at all. That's just not going to happen. Right. And how, how low of a failure rate do you want to trigger that it's not acceptable? It's, it's, it's bad now. Because right now it's like at 50, 60% of your products have this feature that you, or yeah, feature, this failure mechanism that's occurring, which is bad. And they agree, yeah, that's, it's, that's bad, all right? Well, if it gets to 5%, is that good enough that you will say, we'll, we'll call it done? He says, no, 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 it has to be completely gone. He says, I would just explain that you'll need to test your entire population to failure to determine whether you've got it solved or not. And even then, you don't have anything to sell. Well, that's, no, no, no. We only want to use two samples. Well, then you won't know. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I pulled out the hypergeometric distribution and said, if you expect the population to have a part per million failure rate and you're going to sample it, there's, you can work out the probability that your sample will be good, even though it's at, at, at you know, a, a 2% or a 10% failure rate you can figure out, well, what's the chance of us getting one of the bad ones in our sample just by chance and, or not? Right. And, and so the, you can work out, well, how many samples do you need to prove some confidence of some level that you're there? And they kicked up a spreadsheet real quick, and they were kind of aghast at even a 99 percentile uh, or 1 percent failure rate uh, takes a lot of samples uh, to prove yep. that you're at that level or lower. And that's where you can be smarter about things. So, for example, I don't know what the, the um, um, that, that organization you're talking about. Let's let's just say that the failure mechanism they want to design out of their product is corrosion. Let's just say it's corrosion. Yeah. You don't actually have to test a failure to learn something about 
corrosion. So, for example, if something is, if you've got 50 to 60% field failures and the failure mechanism in question is corrosion, and it's corro- let's say it's corroding a, a, a particular, particular connector, that's what's ruining your day. Yep. Then if you do accelerated live testing and you get no failures, but you can do, you can analyze or, you know. The surface, uh, look for those contaminants. Look, right. Look, look at the, take it to the laboratory. If the corrosive oxide layer is, you know, three nanometers and it needs to be like a couple of microns before it's a problem, then that's probably a good outcome. <laughs> it's a, so it's, it's not just testing to failure per se, but it's still accelerated live testing in that you're accelerating the conditions. Yeah. You might not get a, if you want to have it designed out of your system and what that actually means is that when it does fail, it's orders of magnitude beyond what the customer expects it to be. Um, if, if you can show that there is barely any damage being progressed, then you, you're potentially good and confidence is a measure of you, not a measure of your product. Yeah. So, there is a lot. I mean, we're not giving any specific answers because we don't know what the specific decisions are of each organisation, and a good reliability engineer will be able to say, "Hang on." So you want to make sure this particular fire mechanism is never going to occur again, in, you know, representative use. Okay. Right. Well, well, let's let's get a couple of. Uh, you have two prototypes we can test. Cool. Let's go do that. But instead of just testing it until failure, we're going to test it and then send it off to a laboratory for them to characterize the extent of the corrosive damage that's been incurred. And that's going to give you a really, really, really good uh, amount of confidence if you truly have designed it out of your system, yeah. uh, for example. Yeah. No, let's say they put a coating on it and, and they have a way to accelerate salt spray, for example, on a, on a chassis of a car. Right? right. Does the coating survive? Does it have pinholes in it now? Does it have meth- means for it to become porous such that the salt can attack the steel? If it's still intact after your exposure to the stress conditions, then, well, you've probably got that salt. Um, not counting small rodents in Canada that want to chew the, that particular coating off. <laughs> right. And that's another one I've run into is that sometimes I run into people that say, well, if we... If we solve this problem, you know, or we think we've got it solved, they oftentimes then go create a different problem. I, I right. saw that in accelerated testing when it's a thermal cycling problem. It says, well, well, we'll change the materials so they're not so different anymore. Well, that's good. Um, we usually don't get that difference for free. One, it costs more, but usually it gives up some other property. And so you need to step back and also look at what other failure mechanisms are occurring. And that goes with accelerated testing, too, is that if you design a test that assumes that you only are focusing on one failure mechanism and you minimize everything you can, use the binomial equation with zero failures, which has got all kinds of risks associated with it. And one that most people overlook is that, well, what if it fails for the fuel pump fails and not the corrosion on the chassis? Um, now you just lost a sample, for example. Right. Now your equation doesn't hold water anymore. You can't say that you made it to your goal or objective because you had a suspension in a test that's designed not to allow suspensions. What are you going to do now? You know, you can do all these tricks to minimize sample sizes, yet they almost always come with a risk of, that the test could go bad 
and you won't learn anything from it. Or you have to pivot and do a completely different style test that may violate some of your other constraints and criteria that you're, you're hoping to get out of it. In short, isn't accelerated testing kind of complicated? No, I think, I think, I don't think it is, but it's, it's like, it's as complicated as going for a drive in a vehicle. You just need to know where you are and where you want to go. And then you can plan how much fuel you need. What are you towing? So if you are trying to see if you've eliminated a particular failure mechanism, you know what? You might only need two samples if you have a laboratory who's able to observe the damage associated with that failure mechanism at the end of the test. Yep. But if you can't do that, you need to, the only information you get is from failure points or suspensions, then you need a whole lot more. Are you trying to differentiate between sulfur-cured rubber and peroxide-cured rubber? Then you need fewer tests, fewer samples. Uh, as and The good thing about rubber is we're actually, we do have a good handle on its failure mechanisms as well as Arrhenius model pretty well. Maybe maybe you're trying to compare two different products that are used in different ways and you're not entirely sure about which failure mechanism is dominant. Well, you're going to need a lot more samples because you need to confirm the acceleration model that's uh, that's yeah. you're going to use. So, I mean... Well, that goes to that second question is why are there so many models? Because there's so many different failure mechanisms. I think we can blame God for that one because God invented the universe and by extension physics and and molecular structures and everything else. So God's the one who, who gave us such a wonderfully complex and diverse universe, which the price we pay is there's so many different ways for materials to interact and therefore products fail. So, yeah. Well, I think I the short answer is you gotta, you gotta know where you're going, what you wanna know, and then it's into, well, you know, if you have an existing model or, or existing, you understand that failure mechanism, you got a bunch of good information about it, you know it fits a particular structure, that typically saves you a lot, some samples, depending on what it is. The other one you mentioned is the degradation approach, where if you see the precursors to corrosion existing, well, then you know you haven't solved it yet. It's, it's started. You don't have to wait for it to finish, the chassis to crumble into the ground. But you, once it starts, it's not going to stop kind of thing. Right. Uh, but sometimes it's, is it resilient to a particular impact? Well, then you have a destructive test. Well, that's a different problem, you know, and it, you got to be creative. And I think we were chatting earlier is, is that reliability really does require critical thinking. And I think an accelerated testing and the sample size question is, involves a whole ton of creative thinking before you can answer that question. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it, and it starts with what are you trying to do? Yep. Starts as exactly that. What's the decision you're trying to inform? What do you, what's the objective here? And I don't know. It's, so those two questions came up separate channels. Uh, uh, as I mentioned in most of the episodes is that, uh, we love getting these questions and I'm sure we could talk about uh, more specifics if we had them, but these were two pretty generic questions. And I'm like, hmm, it's interesting that they showed up at the same time. If you're thinking along those lines or in some way synced up with somebody else in, in our audience that has a similar question to you, unbeknownst to either of you, send them over and we'll, we'll probably more than likely, one, get you an answer back um, in, or ask more questions to get more information, uh, but also make it an episode. You can find... Uh, 
a number of different ways to get a hold of us over at ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. And you can get a hold of Chris and I and the other hosts of the show via LinkedIn or our about pages on Ascendo provide a, a alternate ways to get all of us, including email for most of us. So we look forward to hearing from you. Um, this topic of accelerated testing really, I think, is multiple graduate level courses if you really want to get into it. And there's whole piles of really good books and, and courses and all kinds of good stuff out there. Uh, but each one does require thinking. And so that's our, I think, final takeaway on that. Does that make sense, Chris? Think so. You need to think. Yeah. So anyway, we'll think about that and we'll talk to you again in our next episode. Thanks all for listening. Thanks, Chris. Always a pleasure, Fred. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.